Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. I do remember just being in my early 20s and feeling invincible, feeling like I'm not constrained, not having to constantly think about if I do this, how am I going to feel afterwards? If I'm going to shower, will I need to you know, rest afterwards? I can remember it, but I can't remember the bodily sensations of not having any pain whatsoever. Like the concept of not being in pain is completely foreign to me. This is Jason. I am Jason Herderick. I'm 31 year old. Uh, sorry, one sec. Uh, brain fog. Brain fog is one of the ways you can tell that Jason is in pain. He's not having a horrible day today, but it's not great either. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so much fun to deal with. Um, I am Jason. I'm a 31-year-old guy. I am a fellow at The Walrus and a freelance podcast producer. I love playing guitar and spending time in nature, and I am chronically ill. Jason has a chronic pain condition. He's been living with it for about a decade, but it was only more recently that he first heard about something he's since learned is common in the chronic pain community. It's something called the belief score. So about five years ago, I was at a community gathering for chronic pain patients. And near the beginning of the gathering, there was this guy who is late 50s, early 60s, came up to me and just asked me, what's your belief score? And I'd never heard it before, never heard any reference of it. And, you know, so I asked him to kind of explain it. And he responds saying, well, your friends, your family, your doctors, which ones believe you? And at the time, I, you know, I was like, okay, uh, well, right now, technically they all believe me. So I guess it's three. And he was just completely, um, he was just completely shocked. He was like, wow, you've got all three. That's amazing. His score was zero. He had had, you know, friends and family uh, who had disbelieved him for years. Same with his doctors. They had all um, accused him of faking it. Faking, being sick, being in pain. Okay, what did you think when you first heard that, like about the belief score? It just kind of shocked me how, how pervasive the stigmas about invisible illness are. Invisible illnesses. This is a broad umbrella term. It can include everything from chronic migraines to Crohn's, endometriosis to diabetes, a range of conditions where, to look at a person, you'd never know they had something going on, unless they told you. But even then, people with certain kinds of invisible illnesses, such as chronic pain, are often accused of faking it or imagining things. Like, I have not met another person who's chronically ill who hasn't experienced disbelief in some form. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. When you're sick, there are certain things you expect. To be tired, sore, irritable. But baked in there is something 
more tenuous. The hope that you will be trusted that you are as sick as you say you are. So, on that belief score, who believes you? Your doctors? Your friends? Your family? Jason is a three now, but he has not always been. I was a one. Um, My friends, for the most part, all believed me since the very beginning. But I had experienced doctors suggesting that, you know, this wasn't that bad and that I should just be able to push through it. And as well, my family for many, many years. That was probably the biggest struggle. And that is what today's story is about. When the people you love most don't believe you, what do you do? And when you're chronically ill, your relationships become even more important than they were prior to becoming sick. Like, they are everything. They are what keeps you going when you have really, really bad days. So if those relationships are fractured, it just makes everything so much worse. Like, my parents and I, we never had a talk about the fact that they had not believed me for a very long time. And same goes for my grandparents. So I thought that it would really benefit our relationship by talking about that thing that happens. Jason will take us back to the beginning. I'm 31 years old, but in chronic illness years, I'm only 10. When I compare my life before and after becoming sick, it feels like I'm referring to two separate people. Before, I bounce between morning hill runs, engineering lectures, and 3 a.m. study sessions, fueled by coffee and energy drinks. I felt invincible. I treated rest as an inconvenience. But now, it governs much of my life. I live with fibromyalgia, a disorder characterized by widespread pain throughout the body. I'm always tired, the kind of tired that's not solved by rest. My whole body is plagued by a dull ache. It feels like I'm being squeezed by tightly wound elastic bands. I often struggle to focus on basic tasks like washing dishes or writing an email. My decline happened over years. It was triggered on an ordinary Sunday evening 10 years ago during intramural basketball. After grabbing a rebound, I twisted up court and passed the ball. I felt the most intense, sharp stabbing pain in between my rib cage. I severely strained the muscles that are used for breathing. They likely healed within a couple months, but oddly, my pain didn't go away. I convinced myself that my symptoms were only temporary. I pushed through it and tried to focus on everything that was going right for me. I graduated university, spent 10 weeks backpacking through Thailand, and started my engineering career. But over the next few years, my pain intensified and spread to the rest of my body. I became too sick to work. I spent my days reading books on chronic pain, determined to uncover the source of my pain and how to fix it. I bounced from specialist to specialist, being tested for everything from neuropathy to rheumatoid arthritis to Lyme disease. All the tests came back negative. Then, in 2014, I finally got a diagnosis. Fibromyalgia, a chronic condition that affects the nervous system and causes pain through the entire body. I was relieved to finally have a name for the source of my suffering. But my relief quickly faded when I learned that there were very few treatment options for me. Fibromyalgia is hard to understand. There's no widely accepted test to diagnose it. 
and symptoms, widespread pain, fatigue, insomnia, are common to many other conditions. So people living with fibromyalgia can go years without a diagnosis or treatment. Some patients improve over time, but there's no cure. These are big reasons why many people don't believe that it's a real illness. Some medical professionals believe that the part of the brain that processes pain doesn't work properly in fibromyalgia patients. Pain is supposed to protect us. It acts as an alarm bell that warns us of tissue damage to prevent further harm. My alarm bells are always ringing, even when there's no damage. No one can pinpoint why. It gradually sunk in that my life would never be the same again. When you become sick, no one hands you a manual on how to navigate the road ahead. You have to figure it out on your own, and it doesn't always go so well. At first, one of my biggest struggles was managing family relationships. We'd be sitting down for dinner, and I'd talk about how badly my body hurt. The responses would always sound similar. You need to get back to work. I think a lot of this is just in your head. I had about three or four Christmas cookies. Oh, nice. Three or four of them? Yep. <laughs> That's quite a few. So I'm, I'm slowly getting fat, I think. <laughs> I'd say. You're allowed to spoil yourself every now and then. Those are my grandparents, Omi and Opa. I was visiting with them at their cottage. I used to spend weeks here every summer as a child. I'd always return home five pounds heavier thanks to Omi's treasure trove of desserts. Now that I'm not around as much, Omi only has one person to pamper. Yeah, and I think I deserve it. I think so too. <laughs> I don't agree. I wanted to chat with them about my illness. It's no easy task. It's like we're speaking two different languages. Maybe they're hoping they find a cure for you. That would be a miracle, wouldn't it? Don't know if that'll happen in the next well, few years. Yeah, well, you know. we can dream about, can't we? <laughs> you can. You're allowed to dream. Yeah, that would be the biggest uh, present you could give us to become a normal person, like everybody else. A normal person. What does that even mean? It feels as though he's telling me that I'm less worthy of a person because I'm sick. And you can look after yourself. You don't depend on other people. Stand on your own feet. My life is different from most 31-year-olds. I live with my parents and often rely on them for shopping, cooking, and laundry. I've been living this way for eight years. Accepting help is normal for me. But to my grandparents, relying on other people is a weakness. And if you want something badly enough, you'll get it. That's, that's what I believe. But the first step is up to you, really, that you really want it. You have to want it mm -hmm. to get better. When Omi makes those sorts of comments, it's hard not to feel blamed for my illness. As though it's my fault that I haven't fully recovered. She's always giving me motivational speeches. They sound a lot like the one she gave me as a child, 
when she tell me to work hard in school. It's as if she thinks recovering from chronic illness is no different than earning A's on my report card. When my grandparents grew up, toughing it out was the solution to all of life's problems. At 23 years old, I was months into my first job out of university, while they were married with two kids and moving to a foreign country. When she came nine months after I arrived here in Canada, I spoke very well English. I made sure I pick up the language. So you had two kids at the time, right? And I loved three words of English on the boat, yes, no, and okay. And I was two weeks on the boat, had $60 in my pocket, a baby carriage, your father, and that's the first time he got baby food on the boat. I'm trying to imagine Omi spending two weeks on the boat to Canada with only $60 and my dad in a baby carriage. After they arrived, Opa worked long hours as a manual laborer and carpenter. Meanwhile, Omi was at home raising their two kids. Then I started my own business. Slowly, slowly, it took me, oh, I would say it took me, it took me 10 years to get going. So things got a little bit better, but there were still always those bad episodes coming that the customer wouldn't pay and we had to start over again. We did, I think we did that three times. We had to start over again. And sometimes we just sat there, we didn't know what to do. We had two kids and uh, nobody here, no help. And of course, we didn't want to ask for help from at home. They told us years after we should have to told them because we always said, oh, we're doing okay. But it was just the pride that just wouldn't let us going, you know. According to Omi, Opa would have rather died than admit defeat. The harsh times they lived through hardened them into stubborn people. Combine that with the fact that they grew up in a society that had little understanding of chronic pain, and what I'm going through seems unimaginable to them. Did you ever hear about, like, uh, chronic pain when you were younger, though? Like, was that no, a thing? Never. No. Never? No, we didn't. No. My grandparents and I are very close, and always have been. That is, besides a brief period when my illness was in its infancy. They couldn't understand how a young and healthy person could get sick and never recover. I was confused too. Because there's no widely accepted medical test to diagnose fibromyalgia and the symptoms mimic those of many other chronic conditions, my doctors wanted to rule out other conditions before diagnosing me. But when my tests were all coming back negative, my grandparents started questioning what was happening. We just couldn't figure things out why, you know, you could not go back to work, why you were sick. And there were a lot of, you know, we questioned things and we couldn't get an answer. And nobody in our family knew much about chronic pain. And I, I couldn't understand why, any, why no doctor could help you. During those early days when I was still coming to terms with my illness, Omi and Opa both confronted me about why I wasn't working. I pleaded to them that it was because I was really sick. Opa accused me of being lazy. Omi thought there might be something wrong with me psychologically. Hearing that made me feel like our special bond was suddenly fractured. 
I never understood why they thought I'd abandon my career just like that. I loved my old job. I worked as an energy analyst conducting energy conservation studies. But that description makes my work sound boring. I was basically a building detective. I was taking greenhouse gases out of the air and putting energy back into the grid. It was challenging work, but I loved it. When I became too sick to continue working, giving it up was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Many months after my grandparents first confronted me, I visited them for dinner. I was wincing in pain the whole night and only noticed. The next day, she broke down in tears over the phone. She finally realized that I was sick. We were heartbroken. And at one time, I thought, I said, if he doesn't get help, we're gonna lose him. And I had to go out of the room in tears. And every time I seen you, I, I cried. And, and we were so helpless. It was just unbelievable, heartbreaking to see that. In an awkward role reversal, I consoled her about my own illness. But I still find myself replaying those early arguments in my mind. I've always had this nagging question. Why didn't they believe me? This was the first time we had spoken about any of this. Was there a point then when either like you and Opa um, had doubts about like, how much pain I was really in or, or any doubts about like if I wanted to work or not? It was not a, it was not a doubt, but we thought, we wondered if you picked something up in Thailand, a tropical disease or something. We just, we just couldn't figure things out why, you know, you could not go back to work, why you were sick and we questioned things and we couldn't get an answer. Even after I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, there were times when we all questioned whether my doctors had missed something. I mean, how is it possible that I'm in this much pain and yet no medical test could pinpoint the underlying cause of my illness? My brain sending overactive pain signals to my body just seemed so unsatisfying. But my symptoms lined up and fibromyalgia was the only answer I had that any of us have. Early on, like, you know, I was scheduled for so many tests, MRIs on my back, um, all sorts of like bone imaging and stuff like that. And the results all came back negative. Um, and after a while, um, you know, my, my mom and dad both sort of looked at me at, at some points and were basically saying like, is it that you don't want to work because you know, if you were if you were in pain, something should show up on your scans. And I think my dad especially thought that I didn't want to work so much or he just had doubts about like, was I really in a lot of pain? Um, or was there something else going on or? Well, I can easily understand why a parent feels that way, why any person thinks that way. Uh, because there's just no explanation for it somehow, mm. you know. And, and and a lot of people 
I think uh, Gordes Rude, I said they're sick and they're not sick and because to avoid work or uh, get some other help or something. Dude. I mean, we all heard of that, right? H have you guys? Yes. Yeah. yeah. There, there's there are people out there who yes. who do that sort of thing. Who use the system and they just don't want to work and they come up with all the excuses. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things that crosses your mind. When I left work, it it really crushed me. And when I had a lot of people from outside expressing doubts or saying like I, they think I could keep working, it was really difficult for me back then because I I thought that people were doubting whether I had a strong work ethic or everything that got me to that stage. You know, and I can I can easily see why that is happening, very easily. You know that that uh, I would or anybody would think that way. Honestly, it's a, it's a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. Don't you agree? Why, why, like, I would I would feel the way I do? Or that or your why? parents felt the way they did? I can see that because I, probably, I would have felt the same way. Right. I mean, you, because you know more about it now than we do and all that, you might not quite understand our questions. But this yeah. is normal. You want to have your kids to have a good job, which brings a good life, and you want to keep growing on. You know, like what you, you want to have the best for your kids. Omi and Opa made sacrifices to build a better life for my dad, and he did the same for me. I can understand how hard it must have been for them when my life didn't turn out the way they expected. But listening back, I can't help but notice how Omi acknowledged everyone else's suffering but mine. After all, I'm the one who lives with chronic pain. I think that's why I didn't push back. Deep down, a part of me feels like I've let them down. That I'm responsible for the grief my illness has caused them. I still carry around a lot of guilt. It's lessened over time, but it hasn't fully gone away. And it may never go away. Thank you so much for, for all of this. You're very welcome. I hope it helps you a little bit. It does. It does. Give you a hug. <laughs> Love you. My little one. No, <laughs> My little one. There's something else I hear listening back. That I love my grandma enough to protect her from how much she's hurt me. She hasn't validated my physical pain, and she has refused to acknowledge the emotional pain that she and Opa have caused me. But I'm not willing to get in a fight with her over it. To hurt her for hurting me. So I give her a hug and thank her for being willing to talk at all. But there's someone else I really need to speak with who didn't believe me for years. My dad. AC here. That's next. We'll be right back. From CBC Podcasts and The Fifth Estate, Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control. From the Cold War and MKUltra to the so-called War on Terror, we learn about a psychiatrist who used his patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I only dealt with my grandparents' disbelief every few months during our visits, but I lived with my parents that entire time. My dad and I argued, which often escalated into yelling matches. My dad's constant questioning sowed seeds of doubt into my mind. Over time, I began questioning whether my pain was even legitimate, even though deep down, I knew that it was. I like to think that I've forgiven my dad, but I haven't forgotten about it. I still live with him, which makes it even more important to resolve our differences. I decided to talk with him about it. I was very nervous. So, um, what was going through your mind when I told you, like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to continue working because my pain is getting so bad? Well, I, I could see that, okay, he needs, a, he needs a, a time off. But then, you know, all of a sudden, he said, well, this, I, I don't know if I'll be able to go back for two years. I thought, what? <laughs> you know, I, I, I was wondering, you know, what was going on? Did, did you think at any point that I just didn't want to work? I thought that maybe you couldn't handle the stress of working. Mm. I thought that the stress of working was too great for you and you were trying to use pain as a crutch to get out of it or whatever. But uh, there was a lack of understanding about you know fibromyalgia and stuff like that. We were looking at it from the point of a sprain or a strain. Yeah, I like around that time it was really tough for me because I... I don't know. I feel I feel like I was a really hardworking person, you know, in in university and in sports and everything. Um, and yeah, I think that that whole time was just really really tough for me because I was like trying to you know accept. Suddenly, I've got this body. Oh, I'm, and, I'm sure yeah. it was, and that was the other side of the coin. I had you had worked for me part time in the summer. You were the hardest physical, work, strongest physical worker I, I, I ever had, you know, the, the, the stuff that you do, you know, nine hours a day up in Barry, then you'd come home and lift weights or go for a jog. And, you know, so I just thought, you know, we just need a short respite to get and then slowly work back into it. When my dad used to accuse me of trying to get out of work, he was rejecting who I was at my very core. My number one dream was to return to work. That might sound unbelievable, but I mean it quite literally. For years, I had a recurring dream of strolling into my office, greeting all my old coworkers, and working. Then I'd wake up and realize it was only a dream. I was devastated each time. My dad saw stress as my only problem, not a symptom of a much bigger problem. How did you perceive my pain levels back then when I was complaining about it? Minor, you know, okay, you got a, tw a sprain in your back or something like that, you know, got to work it out it's you know it's not even in your spine it's in your muscles it can't be that bad i usually don't grimace like someone with a broken bone or sprained ankle because pain is normal to me i can't even remember what it's like to not be in pain on bad days i might seem a bit spaced out yeah um one second i'm just gonna major major brain fog today so um when I'm in a lot of pain, my brain becomes foggy and I struggle to access my own thoughts. 
They can vanish any moment, never to return. My brain fog also gets worse when I'm under stress. Um, I remember hearing you say, like, if you can go swimming or can go for a walk or, you know, go hang out with your friends, then you should be able to work. Well, I guess it was, it. it's hard to consider somebody physically, you know, if you can hike six or 10 kilometers over rugged ground, you should be able to do, to work and do stuff and, you know, in Grand Barrett, you know, it, is it the om- lack of mobility that would make it impossible for you to work or is it the stress of the work? I think like back then it was so inconsistent. Some days I could wake up and I could go walk, as you said, six to 10 kilometers. Then other days I'd get up and I wouldn't be able to focus. I wouldn't be able to sit in a chair for more than five minutes. And yeah, it was just the complete unreliability of it. Severe chronic illnesses don't blend well with employment, especially in a demanding field like engineering. Trying to maintain my physical and mental health while attending doctor's appointments already felt like a full-time job. Add in the fact that my body was completely unreliable, and there's no way I could work a steady job. It almost felt like my family could only see my illness if they squinted really hard and only on certain days. The changing nature of my illness fed their skepticism. I constantly felt like I was under surveillance. Instead of enjoying my good days, I spent them worrying that everyone was judging me for not looking sick enough. And sometimes I made that situation worse. Pain makes people uncomfortable, and I'll often hide mine so that I'm not the center of everyone's attention. In movies, invisibility is often portrayed as an appealing superpower. Sometimes I like being able to fade into the background. But more often than not, it makes my life harder. Has your understanding changed of what chronic illness looks like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't look like anything. You, you know, it can be different for all sorts of different people. Um, it doesn't look like anything because in a large part, it's invisible. Hmm. Can you tell when I'm having a good day versus a bad day? Yeah, yeah. It's the degree of brain fog, the cloudy mood, um, you know, the dropping of the glasses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, can you tell today if I'm having a good day or bad day? Well, you no, it, you sound like you're having an okay day compared to the past few days, but I uh, can see during this interview that you are not having a terrific day. <laughs> no, I'm not at all. It's a, it's a rough one. Um, yeah. But three years ago, you wouldn't even laugh. No. No. My dad is referring to the period that I was trapped in a downward spiral. For 18 straight months, I lost more function each week. I stopped having good days altogether. My invisible illness became visible to everyone. It was a nightmare. When you couldn't come down the stairs to eat anymore. I thought you were just didn't want to be with us. That's why you wanted to eat in the, in the family room. You actually wanted to lie down in a more prone position, but then when you couldn't come down, then that's when it hit. And what was that moment like? It's like finding out that your your kid has a possible terminal illness, and you know what do we do? We gotta you know this this can't go on. Fibromyalgia isn't a terminal illness. 
But when I became so sick that I couldn't even talk or feed myself, my pain robbed me of the will to live. I often told my parents that. I knew they couldn't take my pain away. It was a cry for help. When my dad realized how severe my illness was, he was distraught while I was relieved. I no longer feared being accused of faking or exaggerating my illness. But the feeling didn't last. Soon, I was overwhelmed with dread. But it did go on and it got worse. Way worse. Yeah. Yeah. What were your, what were your biggest fears when you saw me just getting worse and worse? That, that I'd wake up in the morning and it would be the morning that you wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. For a long time, I was angry at my dad for not believing me. But when I was at my sickest, he supported me when I needed him the most. He cooked, cleaned, and spoon-fed me meals every day. But I really do appreciate it so much. You know, I, for a lot of that time in, you know, when I was at my sickest, I felt really guilty because I felt like not only was, was my, not only was I screwing up my own life, but I was pulling everybody else down with me. Like you Our lives know. changed and, you know, they continue to change with circumstances that happen around us. Mm-hmm. We've stuck together as a family and there's been, you know, I, I quit work because of your illness and once you started to recover, I felt I didn't have the need to go back to it mm-hmm. or, or the desire. My dad and I both left work because of my illness. And as we're talking, I suddenly learned that we have something else in common too. I mean, I had pain as, as a, I, I had absolutely horrible tendonitis from age 14 to 17. You know, in, in my shoulder, you know, sometimes for two months I couldn't lift my shoulder or my arm above my head. So I, I, I had chronic pain too at that point, but it was always, you know, well, it goes. I still had to work with it too, which was no fun. This is the first time I've ever heard my dad mention that he's had chronic pain too. Did, around that time, did you ever experience anyone like dismiss your pain or downplay the severity of it at all? Well, Omi and Opa just, you know, couldn't even understand it at all. What, what, did, well, what did they think? Well, you know, he got a sore arm, but nothing, nothing. I did, I threw out my back once when I was 14, and they could relate to that because Opa and Omi had both thrown out their backs before. But the tendonitis, eh, it's just got a sore arm. It was suddenly clear to me where my dad's disbelief about my pain stemmed from. Omi and Opa's attitudes towards my dad's pain shaped his attitude towards mine. I really want to unpack all this with my dad. I can see it's the perfect opportunity to close the circle on my family's habit of minimizing each other's suffering. But my illness had other plans. So, yeah, I guess, well... Oh, God, I'm having such horrendous brain fog. This is hard. Um, so I try another tactic, giving my dad the floor. Do you have any questions for me? If you, I don't know if, uh, if your head's there to answer it, but what do you think we should have done differently? Um, I think withholding judgment 
like the thing that was the thing that I think was hardest for me early on was that I was grieving the loss of my former life after I developed pain and I was realizing I'm not going to be able to work a full-time job anymore and I was grappling with the idea that my life might never be the same again and early on early on it was tough because both of you it would seem like you guys both thought that I should just be able to push through this and it felt like we were working against each other it felt like I didn't feel fully supported during those early days and like now I'm dealing with the stress of that and then I'm also dealing with the stress of us having this strained relationship. So I think that made things harder for me. It felt like we were finally starting to understand each other better. But then we began rehashing an old argument. Well, quite frankly, we had never seen anything or heard of anything like this before, except in people who were faking it. Yeah. And and all, all my life, I guess in business, I was always told, you know, by my father and other businessmen, yeah, they're faking it. They're not a symptom wrong with them. Oh, I got a pain. Yeah. Is it is it is it possible though with some of those people that there could just be something going on that you're not aware of? Like whether or not it's a chronic illness, but it could oh, it it could well be, but uh they were they were trying to make me pay for it. You weren't one of them, but some people will make discomfort the excuse not to have to do anything or to do work or whatever. I imagine that though that's got to be more in the minority though. I had to push back here. My dad was defending his belief that many people are inherently lazy and would fake a chronic illness. The same belief that damaged our relationship for so long. Being permanently sick is no vacation. Neither are doctor's appointments and trips to the ER. I was disappointed. It seemed to me that my dad hadn't learned from his past mistakes. He was basing his assumptions on rare instances he witnessed as a general contractor. Um, I've seen a number of cases of it. And where? Like can you can you can um, you remember any of those? Uh yeah, I can, but I I don't want to uh point fingers at um a typical example is you know, someone who always finds an excuse to have someone else do the work for them. I mean, there was one guy that came out point blank. Uh, I don't feel like working. Can you put me on workers' cop? Really? Yeah. <laughs> As though it wasn't going to cost me anything to put him on workers' cop. Well, it does. My dad is conjuring up the lazy boogeyman the person who will work so hard at pretending to be sick, to avoid work, or to cheat the welfare program. In medicine, this is called malingering. Assuming I was a rare case of fraud, what would my motivation be? Why would I quit a well-paying job to receive disability benefits that pay a measly $14,000 per year? That's nearly $6,000 below the poverty line in Ontario. I'm frankly so offended that my dad ever thought that I would defraud him. That I was that lazy. That I worked so hard, 
only to quit my job and take him and my mom for a ride. What kind of person does that? But hearing out my dad helped me realize that his misperceptions had nothing to do with me. They were about him. My invisible illness didn't fit with his beliefs or past experiences. Someone trying to get out of work did. In many ways, it was a good conversation, but I didn't say everything I wanted to say. And revisiting all those painful memories left me feeling physically and emotionally exhausted. My experiences with my family are not unique. They're nearly universal among chronic illness patients. In the past, I've turned to my chronic illness friends after having stressful conversations about my illness. So I called my friend Monica. In chronic illness years, I'm still a child, while she is an adult. Monica and I have never met in person. I live in Toronto and she lives near Oakland, California. Despite the distance between us, we've become close friends. Monica was cooped up at home like most of us have been over the past two years. But her home includes an actual coop. Capelia's coming up, I'll know what's going on. Um, Th those are chickens that I'm hearing here? Those are chickens. They. <laughs> this is their trick, is they think if they cluck loud enough, I'll go out there and give them mealworms. And they're probably right. Um, they're, they're like your kids just calling for attention. I do. I, I seriously have to steal five minutes to like do anything. Like it is this constant theft of time from everyone in my life to do anything. Monica lives in a small cottage style bungalow surrounded by an eco-friendly garden, a vineyard and an orchard. She lives with her husband, two kids, five chickens, two dogs and two cats. She's almost always this bubbly. Just listening to her, you probably wouldn't guess that she's always in pain. I used to think that facing doubts about your chronic illness was rare. But what I've learned from friends like Monica is that it happens all the time. And a warning, in just a moment we mentioned suicide and suicidal ideation. My family did not believe me for a very long time. What's, um, what's a very long time? Uh... I don't think they really, really got it until probably about like six years ago. And I'm in my 40s, just to be clear. Like, <laughs> it's a long time. I've been sick since I was eight. So they would believe some things. Like when I was eight, I had ulcers. Um, th that was quantifiable. It took two years of not being able to walk um, before they're like, yeah, CRPS. And then it took a while for the doctors to explain to my parents how painful that disorder is. Um, Chronic regional pain syndrome. Uh, pain it's syndrome? called, it's a suicide disorder. CRPS stands for Chronic Regional Pain Syndrome. It is also known as the suicide disease because of just how excruciating and relentless the pain is. In 2009, a U.S. study of CRPS patients found that nearly half of patients experience suicidal ideation at some point during the course of their illness. It took a pain clinic to explain to my parents how bad that is. And it took quantifiable things for the doctors to believe because there's no, nothing visible to it. Before we go on, I want to take a moment to let you know that if you're in crisis and need help, you can call the Canada Suicide Prevention Service at 1-833-456-4566, or you can send a text to 45645. They are there to help. 
Along with CRPS, Monica also has a connective tissue disorder called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, as well as fibromyalgia and other conditions. Although she's been sick most of her life, Monica learned how to cope with pain long before the onset of her illnesses through competitive dance. I'm also ballet trained, um, so stoic is my world. I don't show pain on my face very often. Um, if I do, it's way past when I'm okay. Um, so it's really hard for me because like, by the time I would say something to anyone in my life, I'm hurting, I can't do this anymore. I'm already at the absolute top. And what they're visually seeing is just someone calmly going, I can't do this. This is really bad. Well, inside I'm screaming. <laughs> it was really frustrating for me because I felt like I was being a good person by not complaining. This reminds me of all the times that sports taught me not to complain about pain. During football practice in high school, I slammed my leg against the goalpost. Afterward, a senior asked me, are you injured or are you hurt? If you're not injured, you're supposed to keep playing. I could hardly walk, so I decided to sit out. But for the rest of practice, I felt like I was doing something wrong. I found out later that I had torn my calf muscle. The fact that I even considered playing on it baffles me now. Monica, on the other hand, suffered real consequences from the societal pressure to tough it out. You don't give in to your pain. You push past your pain. And then ballet really didn't help that. So I danced on stress fractures till I ruined my legs. Like, it's, you know, this is not a healthy mindset to push past it and bootstrap it. Like, this is very damaging. But it's what I grew up with and what was expected. Have you talked with your parents about their history of doubting you? My mom and I, uh, my mom and I are uh, intensely close now after uh, a few years of estrangement. Uh, but we just kind of made this commitment to each other that this relationship was going to be important and we were going to fight through everything, um, which meant that we weren't going to give up on each other. Even if we said something horribly offensive to the other person, we were going to keep talking until we understood it. And that was a huge part of that, too. Um, although she ended up being my biggest advocate, even when I was a teenager. So my mom actually fought for me. Um, but it did take some time around discussing like, hey, that kind of hurt my feelings when you did this and this and this. I, I thought a lot of it was going to be unforgivable until I had children. Being that Monica is a parent, I'm wondering if she can shed any light on why my dad found my pain so hard to deal with. My mom can't handle me in pain. And that took like being on the other side of this to go, that's not the choice I'm going to make as a mom. Like that's not what I would do to my kids. Um, but I get it. I understand the motivation now. And that was a huge change that I would not have come to if I didn't have the 24-7 being a parent because you make really bad choices because you're tired and it's non-stop of like making choices. And like this morning, I just had my small come in to talk to me about gender issues. It was before my coffee. <laughs> like I had just opened my eyes and my kid is talking to me about gender issues and how my child feels about certain things. And I was tired and I said something insensitive and stupid. And my child started deflated and walked out and I gave it three beats. And I was like, well, that was dumb of me. So I called my kid back in. I was like, you tried to tell me something important and I brushed you off because I was tired. I'm sorry. Do you need to discuss this with me without me giving you advice? Now that's, that just shows you like a little moment, but like, you know, there's definitely times where my kids have come to me about pain and I'm like, 
I'm in pain too. I'm tired. I, I don't have it in me to like be your number one therapist and then also be your nurse, you know, and then make dinner and then make sure the house is cleaned and then make sure you got to your orthodontist appointment and, and, and like, you're a much better parent now if you do not have children than you will be when you have them. I, I think that's the best way I can phrase it. Like I was a much better parent before I had kids. Talking with Monica has helped me understand how much easier it is to judge our parents by their failures rather than by their successes. I imagine that raising three ungrateful kids who were constantly fighting was a tireless job for my parents. And after decades of hard work, when it finally came time to enjoy their retirement, they were assigned a new task with no expiration date caregiving for their chronically ill son. They must have been so exhausted. One of the biggest things I took away from how I felt not being believed by my parents is that my default is to believe my kids. So if my 13-year-old says I need a mental health day because I can't, I am very likely to say okay. Um, If my child tells me that they have really bad pain and they don't want to go to school, we have a discussion about it. I go, okay. And instead of punishing, like I kind of felt like like I was punished if I didn't go to school. It's like, it's kind of like, a, all right, if you are really feeling sick, you know, we might have to go to the doctor and these are the things that we're going to need to get done at the doctor. And if they felt that way, yeah, we do all those things. But a lot of the time it was like, maybe I'll try school and I'll call you from school if I don't feel good. <laughs> it's like, okay, that sounds like a good plan. You got that. Sure. No worries. Discussing this with Monica has reminded me of the side of chronic illness that often gets lost in the sea of suffering. Our empathy. We're highly attuned to other people's pain. Monica's illnesses have helped her become a more caring mother. Mine has inspired me to have uncomfortable discussions with my family so that we can better understand each other. We didn't resolve everything in our first conversation, but I'm sure we'll have more in the future. I asked Monica for some advice on how to navigate them. Yeah, um, it's the advice that's got me through everything. Um, One is something that my mother taught me, and I use it all the time, is how we end up being okay with each other, which is this, I just need you to listen. I need you to not talk. I just need you to hear what I'm saying, and I promise you at the end of it, we can fully discuss it, but I just need you to listen for right now. So I think that's really important is to allow for space for people to feel how they need to feel in it without jumping down throats. Like it's good to always have an out and to allow someone to take the out. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it, I mean, it gets at this idea that really giving people space just to be heard is is so important. I mean, 90% is that. (laughs) Yeah. That conversation I had with my dad, where I had really bad brain fog, I didn't think that it went well. I was convinced that neither of us got what we needed from it. But maybe I just needed to be heard. If I were to offer advice to a parent who suspected that their child was faking or exaggerating their illness, I would just say, first off, listen to them. Listening is the number one thing. Second is believe them. I, I really, to me, I think it's that easy. Would it have made anything better for you? Would it have prevented your slide? 
I can't I can't say how it would have affected that, but I think I think the stress in the early days um, contributed to some of my symptoms. Now I'm not saying in any way that you guys caused my decline because that was outside of your hands. I, I'm in no way am I putting that on your shoulders, but I do think that having a strange relationship while you're adjusting to a chronic illness is really, really hard. Whereas if you can get support in those early days, that can make all the difference early on. What Monica was saying about 90% of the battle being listening, we're already doing that. My dad wanted to know what he could have done better. And when I told him, he didn't interrupt. He listened. That was a big step forward. My illness is chronic and ongoing, just like these conversations will be ongoing. We'll probably have more tense moments ahead, but we're committed to figuring it out. Even when our love hurts, we both know that it's worth fighting for. Jason Herderick. That doc was produced by Jason with Kent Hoffman and Jennifer Warren. It was edited by Kevin Ball, Sherry OKK, and me. To echo Jason, because this is worth repeating. If you are in crisis and need help, you can call the Canada Suicide Prevention Service. Here's that number again. They're at 1-833-456-4566. Or you can send a text to 45645 and speak with someone today. On our website, you can find an incredible essay by Jason about his experiences and photos of him with his Omi and Opa. That's at cbc.ca slash docproject. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Kevin Ball, Tanera McLean, Allison Cook, Joan Weber, and me. Althea Manassan is our digital producer, and our senior producer is Sherry OKK. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.